0: This is Nicole Murphy. This is Rachel Emanuel. Hi, this is John Cohen. Hey everyone, this, this is Glenn Jung from Bright Light News. This is Drew Weatherhead. This is Tara Kelomega. This is Ed Dowd, and you're listening to the Sean Newman Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, folks. Happy Friday. We got uh, oh, we got an interesting one on tap for you today. Before we get there, let's get to today's episode sponsors, Rectech power products. They've been committed to excellence in the power sports industry for the past 20 years. They offer a full lineup. Can-Am, Ski-Doo, Sea-Doo, Spider-Mercury, Evinrude, Mahindra Rocks. They're open uh, Monday through Saturday. You know, it, it being summer here and everybody's out on their, their machines, they boat, and boating, etc. They got parts department. Uh, they can hook you up with upgrades, odds and ends, maintenance. You get the point. All you got to do is go to RectechPowerProducts.com. You can see what they're Everything they got, of course. And then uh, they're located on the west side of Lloydminster, and you can uh, stop in today, see their showroom, see everything they're working on. Go bug Ryan or the team over there. And, uh, yeah, and and look at some of the some of the cool products they got going on. McGowan Professional Charter, uh, Chartered Accountants, uh, they've been dealing with the podcast and doing the books. I tell you what, Kristen's pretty good. I got uh, very, very high things to say about her. Just sat and had a conversation with her uh, this week. You know, I'm dealing with some different things in the tax world, and uh, you know, I, I say this lots. You got to look for those people that just like light up when you when when you're in and they're talking about whatever they do. And she is one of those uh, fine people uh, when it comes to dealing with uh, taxes, because I, you know, I, books, taxes, it's just it's not that over my head. It's just, yeah, such a, ugh, I just don't even want to deal with it. Anyways, going in and dealing with Kristen has has been uh, well worth. Uh, everything she's been fantastic and of course if you're looking for somebody to deal with your taxes they also offer accounting and bookkeeping business consulting and training financial planning and tax planning so if that is up your alley mcgowan professional chartered accountants for everything go to McGowanCPA.ca. cpa.ca ignite distribution out of wainwright alberta they can supply automotive industrial safety and welding parts they also on, uh, offer on-site inventory management so if you uh you know basically you know they take care of making sure you never run out of whatever it is that makes you run so you know take the take the pressure off right and if that's uh, something up your alley uh 7808423433 that's Shane uh, Stafford now let's get on to that tale of the tape uh, brought to you by Hancock Petroleum. For the past 80 years, they've been an industry leader in bulk fuels, lubricants, methanol, and chemicals delivering to your farm, commercial, or oil field locations. For more information, visit them at (laughs) HancockPetroleum.ca. He's a former chief of the Critical Care Service and medical director of the Trauma and Life Sports Center at the University of Wisconsin. He's considered one of the world pioneers in the use of ultrasound by physicians in the diagnosis and treatment of critically ill patients. He helped develop and run the first national courses in critical care ultrasonography in the U.S. and served as the director of these courses with the American College of Chest Physicians for several years. He's also the senior editor of the most popular textbook in the field titled Point of Care Ultrasound. He's a founding member of the FLCCC Alliance and is the author of a new book, The War on Ivermectin. I'm talking about Dr. Pierre Corey. So buckle up. Here we go.
1: This is Dr. Pierre Corey, and you are listening to the Sean Newman
0: Podcast. Welcome to the Sean Newman Podcast. I'm joined by Dr. Pierre Corey. So, sir, thank you for making some time for me.
1: Thanks, Sean. It's a pleasure to be here. An honor.
0: So me and me and and Mr. Corey Pierre. I don't oh, even know. You what the just call me face.
1: Pierre, Sean. I only ask patients to call me Dr. Corey, so please.
0: It's uh, we're. we're chit-chatting here for 10 minutes before we get started but i was saying to him uh, uh, i guess by the time this releases it'll be a couple nights ago now we had our for kids sake uh, for the kids sake meeting in 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 lloydminster and we had a a lady named uh, regina uh Goeman come and uh, come and give a little bit of a talk on her experience with communism living in poland and she immigrated in 1986 and so what i was saying was her to her was like have you ever is there a case in history where a country didn't have to go full on to totalitarianism, communism, to like, for the public to realize, oh, this isn't good, and we shouldn't do this. Or do we have to experience it to finally go like, ooh, we don't want this. And then it was, uh, it was uh, Dr. William Macus who was on stage with her. Goes well. Actually, we just lived it for three years in Canada, and I'm like, oh, that's actually a really good point. I like we're so we all know what it what it's going to be if we don't fight this thing, because we lived it here. You know, all the draconian lockdowns, the the fact that six million ish, maybe more Canadians weren't allowed to leave the country, etc., etc., etc. And uh, and so it was a really really interesting night. I'm I'm kind of side railing us, but I thought I would, we were talking about that story, so I thought yeah, I bring now- it up.
1: We were. I mean, I, what I was saying to you, you know, I was like, you know, you were talking about the, the people we have interviewed and your, your work in Canada. I, you know, I just said, listen, when, what I've seen over the last three years, like Canada, Australia New Zealand. I, I mean, just I, I've never seen countries transformed into this draconian totalitarianism, coercion, just the restrictions, the oppression, suppression. You know, use all the words you want and. You know, I think for a lot of—I'm uh, guessing as I wasn't in Canada—but for a lot of Canadians, that was normal. It was an appropriate response to this health emergency, right? Like that is normal. And when you look at it, devoid of science—I mean, there was no science supporting those policies. Never has been. I mean, lockdowns. I mean, most public health experts, anyone trained in public health, knew going into the COVID, you don't lock down. That's never been a scientifically supported response, and yet, what happened? The world locked down, and and none more so than those three countries. It was um, it was shocking, and 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 the few people that really questioned and spoke out against it, and I, I got to tell you, I mean, the, the the convoy for me was such a. Um, well, initially it was a bright moment. I mean, finally, I was waiting for like when, and not to overset when are the people going to rise up against this? And that convoy was so uplifting to all, now it was suppressed, censored in the media. And then obviously it ended somewhat tragically and, and, you know, oppressively, but, um, but, you know, that inspired the, the people's convoy in the U S which I was a part of, you know, I helped launch it. I was at the end, we went to Congress and um, it was just really inspiring. So I you know, to those Canadians that uh, that supported that convoy because it, it was necessary.
0: Yeah, I, I well, as a guy who went and experienced Ottawa, I mean it was uh, it was quite the sight to see, and and I always talk about. Uh, um, I don't know. I've kind of dubbed it the pilgrimage to Ottawa because, I mean, in Canada, to get to Ottawa, it isn't like you, you hop on the bus and you're there in two hours. I mean, obviously, you're on the east coast or east side of Canada. It's a little different. But, you know, uh, driving across the prairies in the dead of winter and then across the northern part of Ontario to get there, you're talking a lot of hours. And the amount of people on the side of the highway yeah. uh, encouraging them to go was insanity in the best form of the word like the coolest form i've ever seen in my life it's hard to recount it but i just you know like it it was just a pilgrimage it was just it was just wild to see honestly Pierre, like i i don't know if i'll ever see anything quite like it i would love to see it again uh you know but i don't know how you ever get back to the point where there's that many people braving minus 30 to minus 40 weather to sit on the side and wave flags and like you know it, it was just it was amazing
1: yeah, I mean, the same thing with the, the people's convoy in, in the US, you know, you know, I actually didn't travel across the country, but I, I was there, I, I spoke at the start, because there was a few days we were there. And then at the end, we were there for many days, you know, the, the convoy was circling Washington, but the trip across, I mean, literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people lining the roadways supporting the convoy, and you didn't hear about it. It didn't appear in the. Like you literally had a country, and and that is, you know, when we talk about totalitarianism, like you, you look at the history of those totalitarian countries, you know, whether it's, you know, uh, Soviet Union or North Korea. I mean, they they don't they or or China, right? With Tiananmen Square, I mean, it, it's censored, and you saw that happening in this country, a, a, a an uprising that most Americans weren't aware of. And the the really hard, the the really unfortunate thing about the People's convoy in the U.S. is that it literally launched at the same time as all, the Ukraine war broke out. And so it was it was Ukraine 24-7, yet we had an uprising here. And you heard way more about – not way more. All you heard about was Ukraine, you know, and it, it – uh, I'll never forget that.
0: Yeah, well, it's, it's – you know, I, I always come at this with a little bit of uh, a different – lens i guess because I, I wasn't in the middle of media you know I was, I was started a podcast you know working in the oil field and i was telling you a little bit of, you know i played hockey until i was 26 and then you come back you start a job and you know you got a family and, you, and then you start podcasting because you you know and 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 so the story goes and 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 you know so i get thrown into this weird world where nobody's talking to you know, I, I'll just go back to, you know, some of the, the doctors like uh, Roger Hodkinson yep. or or uh, Peter McCullough. You know, uh, I was talking to Nick Hudson out of South yep. Africa and Julie Panassi and all these different names because nobody else wanted to talk to him. I'm like, well, I'll talk to him. Like, I mean, I, I don't know what's going to happen here, you know, and and it's just like when you talk about the censorship, it's like, absolutely. We weren't allowed to talk to our own. Like they didn't want people talking to one another. It's like, well, that's insane. It's like, how would we solve some solutions? And you were one of the guys early on that had the testimony about Ivermectin and all these different things. And you know, us, I was sitting there and I was going, oh, you know, this sounds interesting. And I don't know, you gotta, you gotta walk me through this. I mean, I just listened to actually, and I'm sure lots of my listeners have, uh, to to the dark horse you were on the dark horse talking about your new book and and ivermectin and and different things and i'm you know normally pierre and we can kind of rewind this a bit normally when it's your first time on the podcast we talk a lot about your background you you've been such a public uh figure to a lot of my audience including myself i almost feel like i'm skipping over a part so we can talk about that or we can talk about your experiences through COVID, whichever you you, wherever you want to start
1: I, I'm happy. Let, let me just give a, a little overview and I'm going to try not to sound so, it, this isn't egotistical, but, you know, I, I'm, a, um, uh, I'm triple boarded, right? So I'm trained in internal medicine, pulmonary diseases and critical care medicine. And I, you know, I, my career prior to COVID, I was quite well known in my specialty. I was like one of the, the world experts in, in a field that I literally helped develop, which was the use of uh, ultrasound, in the ICU by doctors, and so it's critical care ultrasonography, or some people call the field the point of care ultrasonography, where we literally taught doctors how to use ultrasound to image internal organs to make life-saving diagnoses. And I, I became so fascinated by the power of that imaging technology. And you know, now we have these small units, and you know, I, I ended up uh, writing a textbook with two colleagues. Um, and it became, you know, one of the top-selling textbooks. It's translated into seven languages. I I toured the country, if not the world, for years, you know, putting on huge courses, teaching doctors everywhere how to use this technology. And so I was very well-known in my specialty, published. Um, I had a couple other areas of expertise in, in critical care medicine. And so, so that was me before COVID. And, you know, when COVID came out, Sean, I mean, you know, I'm a pulmonary and critical care physician and I saw this pulmonary and critical care disease started to ravage the world. You know, the images from China and Lombardy and then Seattle started to get hit in New York. I got hit and I, I'm a New Yorker. I'm from New York. I was trained there. I trained a lot of doctors there. I worked there. You know, when COVID came out, I was the chief of critical care service and the head of the main ICU at the University of Wisconsin, which is one of the biggest research institutions in the country. And, you know, so I was a very prominent clinician and, um, you know, I saw this disease coming and, you know, one of my closest friends and colleagues is Professor Paul Merrick. And Paul Merrick is way more famous than I am in critical care. I mean, he is literally the most published practicing intensivist in our, in the history of our specialty. And, you know, a couple other doctors had come to Paul because he's famous for his protocols. And they said, hey, you guys got to do something, you know, put, put out a protocol, put out a treatment guide and, you know, get some of your colleagues. And, you know, Paul asked me and and three others, and we formed our nonprofit, which was the Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance or FLCCC. And all we sought to do was develop the most effective treatment protocols for COVID. And, you know, the first six months of the pandemic, we really just worked on a hospital protocol, right? Because that's where patients were the sickest. And, you know, what some people don't know is, you know, they, they remember my ivermectin testimony, but I testified in the U.S. Senate in May of 2020, and I essentially told the world, you need to use corticosteroids in, this, in, in the hospital phase of this disease, and that people were dying because they weren't being treated with corticosteroids. And I did that at a time when every national and international health care organization was saying not to use steroids. And so that was like my first uh, brush with, with the system or the, the consensus. Now, the, the only thing I can say of all the fights, I, I shouldn't say fights, but all of the topics that I become expert at and advocated in, in COVID, that was the only win. I mean, when I advocated that, I, I got into a lot of, I got a lot of harassment after that. But two months later, Sean, corticosteroids became the standard of care worldwide overnight. Um, in the hospital phase. So I was proven correct in my earlier testimony, but then let's go back, let's go to where it really gets, <laughs> where it really gets heavy is that, you know, what we were doing was we were following all of the studies and trials on therapeutics, you know, on preprint service publications, you know, studying mechanisms, and we were constantly involving our protocol. And then what happened was Paul, you know, my partner, he started collecting the reports on ivermectin and we were seeing these studies which were just eye-popping like different centers and countries around the world health ministry reports of ivermectin being used and you had these large magnitude reductions in you know not only death and hospitalization but time to viral clearance time to clinical recovery and so paul started talking about it on on a meeting in our organization one day he's like this is really he says you you guys got to look at this and i jumped in right behind him I started just doing nothing but reading and following the data around ivermectin. And and I wrote a review paper. Um, Senator Johnson, who had invited me to testify already in May, he asked me again. He didn't like kind of an early treatment series of hearings in the Senate in December of 2020. And, you know, I gave that ivermectin testimony and I, 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 you know, I got triggered that day, Sean. Like some people don't know what happened, but like I, I was firing that day. And the reason why I was firing is because I used to be a liberal and a Democrat. I'm I don't want to go into politics and what I think about <laughs> government now, but my, my views of government have drastically changed. But
0: you know as 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 has all of us yeah, in, right all of us if you've been paying attention through this everything's changed so yeah, sorry There's to no, interrupt
1: no question and government government is not what i thought it was i used to have a very much more positive view of government and its and its capabilities but you know what happened that day is that the hearing opened and the the ranking member the leading democrat on the committee was the only democrat who showed up and he essentially insulted all of us experts that were invited by Senator Johnson as like political actors. And I was enraged. I was infuriated. Now, I didn't testify for another hour after that opening. And he he gave this statement and he walked out. He basically tried to discredit the whole hearing, insulted all of the invited experts. I mean, we're physicians and scientists. We're not politicians. And and I was so enraged. and And I think it led to a rather fiery testimony. And that testimony went viral. And. You know, it was a really fortuitous circumstance because it it really got the knowledge of a, let's say, the potential efficacy of a treatment. Because there was no treatments. I mean, there was no early treatments. They were telling you to stay home until your lips turn blue, and which is absurd. There is no disease you cannot treat. You can. There is no disease you cannot treat, and you should treat. There's no such thing as allowing a disease to progress and and have patients deteriorate without intervening. I mean, obviously, you never want to do harm. You want to do things that are really, you know that are safe and that are more likely to help than not. But you got to do so. You got to doctor. I mean, we're doctors. And I'm seeing the whole world, like, not doctoring. And now we had some that we had tons of data that we knew we had. It was effective. And, you know, let, let me finish. And because and, and, you asked me, like, like a little bit of my background in COVID, because we'll stop here. But, you know, when I gave that testimony, I mean, I had no idea what was going to happen. I, I, there was no expectations. I was just delivering my research, my expertise, and my guidance, which is what I was being asked to. As a a physician in society, I've always been an educator. I mean, that's what I did. My whole career was really one of what's called a clinician educator. I took care of patients, and I trained young doctors in training, residents, medical students, and I I won awards at, at the major medical. I was like teacher of the year at two different major institutions, and so I'm by nature someone who teaches and here I was like trying to teach the world that there was an effective therapeutic identified and I had no idea that basically what would happen to me. I've lost three jobs in COVID. Um, I've been roundly attacked and criticized The things that I have to read about me is just, uh, I mean – Let's laugh. When I read stuff about me, I'm like, that guy sounds terrible. <laughs> you know? I was like, what an incredible guy. I mean, who would listen to this man? And it's me. You know, I'm just like, you know, anyway, but, you know, what happened there? and it, And it took me a few months to figure out really what was happening. But, you know, what I discovered is that myself – Paul and our organization had launched ourselves into a decades long war on repurposed off patent drugs. It's the Achilles heel of the pharmaceutical industry. They do not want evidence of efficacy for older off patent non profitable drugs. And that there's, I mean, there's decades of examples you could use in oncology, like cancer treatment, cardiology, psychiatry. They constantly want you to take the pricey new pill. And here you had a drug, ivermectin, which posed a greater threat than any other drug in history into, into what it threatened, right? So it threatened the opening markets. I mean, that testimony was literally a week before the vaccines were rolled out, right? So, like, can you imagine worse timing? You have, like, what, a market that's going to hit, like, $100 billion. And and ivermectin would have decimated and threatened not only legally and like regulatorily, right? Because the EUAs, right, the emergency use authorizations, were were literally dependent on the fact that there was no there was no th-
0: alternative drug, no alternative and, treatment. Yeah, and here's this
1: loudmouth New York doctor who's like, "Hey, ivermectin works," and you know what what happened in my life afterwards? Is, I think can be explained by like that. Is that is that I was bringing out what what i would what i would term science that was inconvenient to industry's interest and and that has been part of all of history especially modern history if you bring out science that's inconvenient to industry your career is destroyed i I mean it yeah i mean that that's that's what happened is we were working on science and we went to we went to try to bring that science to the population and that's what happened to
0: us you know it's um First, I, I just want to say quickly that, you know, as soon as I heard, it, and I forget what show it was on, whether it was reading something, but as soon as it said the only way you can have a vaccine with emergency use authorization is if there's no alternative treatments, I'm like, oh, bingo. Like, I, I read that. I'm like, like, I mean, they, I don't know if you have to even go past that. It's just like, oh, there it bingo. is. It's like, it's, it's like so evident. And you shout that from the rooftops, and people didn't, you know, people want to listen, didn't want to listen. It doesn't matter. It's like, oh, there it is. Like, they can't get it into other, kind, you know, it's like, so they're going to just mothball all these different things. The no, second fast. thing, uh, the second thing that I think of, uh, Pierre from a, from a, a sales position, you know, I used to sell chemicals in the oil field and people have their own thoughts on all that. But what happened to uh, different oil field or like different companies in the oil field over time. And so I, I, you know, you're the oil company and I sell you a chemical and over the course of years, you want the price lower so you know over years we just slowly negotiate and it just and you lose all the profitability so then we come up with something new and, yeah and then we take that thing that would have been working for you and we say oh, no, you know they're, they're not going to manufacture it anymore and we take it off the shelf and say it's no longer there and now you have to pay for this new drug and you know it's not a drug obviously right. Chemical but, whatever, yeah. but 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 chemicals i mean at the end of the day if you lose all the profitability and you know and so it starts all over again and so when it comes to drugs I'm like, as a sales guy, I'm like, I actually really get it. It's like there's no profit in it. And they're looking for profit. That they have a board of governors and they, they, they gotta make their profits and they gotta sell it to all the investors and and on and on and on. The thing I couldn't figure out, like this is this and I guess there's just more money in vaccines. But like, why couldn't why couldn't they go and go like I'm action actually, actually works, take it and sell it for more and just way you go and erase it. But I assume it's because it was so available yes. and 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 there's no way to like corner the market.
1: That's what it is. I mean, I've in every country in the world, manufa- I mean, it's a little complicated, that industry, and I'm not an expert at it, but from what I sure. learned, you know, there's actually only three producers of what's called the API, which is the active pharmaceutical in- uh, ingredient. But they make so much, and there's compounders and manufacturers of ivermectin all across the world. I mean, it's, it's used in livestock. Obviously, we know it's used in livestock because that's all public health told us is that it's a horse dewormer, right? But I mean it's a human drug, yeah, I mean, it's used across the world and has been for decades with billions of doses administered. And yeah, there's there's no money. I mean, I think and I'm probably gonna get this wrong. I think it's two cents a pill in India, maybe five cents a pill in India. I mean, you can't make profit with that much manufacturing of it. It's off it's, patent.
0: It's yeah. funny, like just as soon as I got my head around it, it took a long time. I don't know for you, but for me, it took a long time. People had to drag me across the line of like, it's a business, Sean, it's a business. People's health is a business. This isn't about saving people. This is about making money and how they can turn a profit. And you're like, it can't be like, that's that's an inferior, like let's save people. That's yeah. what I saw out of people like yourself. And when I first had Peter McKell on, it was just like, we're trying to save people. This is the best way to save people. Let's save people this way. And it wasn't like the, you know, once you start to see that there's, it's about money and you follow that. But here's the thing
1: about that. Right. So I totally agree with you. Like it's a very simple concept to understand, you know, that you're threatening the profits, right? What I was ignorant of and what has really transformed me and what I've now an expert in is, What happens is when you threaten that industry, what I, to me, what happened in COVID is that it exposed how the industry responds and how much power they hold over many institutions of society. And so I would became an expert in looking at how uh, pharmaceutical industry responds to that threat. So what I wanna say, is, so after that testimony, I didn't think there would be a ticker tape parade, but I thought people would appreciate the information that we had brought forth. I thought agencies would start deploying it systematically in the prevention and treatment of COVID, all of the, all of those good things. I thought like life was going to be different and better, but what happened was that within two days of that testimony, the associated press reached out for an interview and myself and the organization, we were over the moon. We were like the associated press wants to interview me so I can, you know, bring forth my data. And I, it was like a 30 minute interview. I listed all of the data and the trials and the studies and all of this stuff. And then the article comes out the next day and it's a complete hit job, not only on me, but on the science. And they basically just ridiculed and dismissed the idea that ivermectin could work. They lumped it in with hydroxychloroquine. The the, the reporter started writing about a couple who died after drinking like a fish cleaner fluid that had chloroquine in it. I mean, it was you know, I saw that, and we didn't know. We, I was absolutely shocked, and we actually filed an ethics. This is a long time ago. Before we knew anything about the world, but we filed an ethics complaint with the Associated Press because we'd never seen anything like this. I, I had never seen my science and my expertise be reduced to this crap, and it's interesting we did see an email between the president the ceo and the head of ethics of the ap cuz they did like an errant uh, re- reply all so we got to see a little of their conversation and they were like basically telling each other like let's figure out a way Let, let's delay these people to get a, you know before we respond like we could see they saw that we were creating a problem now they did whatever they do and they came out and said there's no ethical concern here <laughs> like but but that was so here here's my point though is you know, that was beginnings of what I had to learn of what we were up against, right? So the Associated Press, you know, some they send someone to do a hit job on me within two days. That. That, that was their first response. And everything continued to go sideways. So like my review paper, um, 200 references, 36 studies, 16 randomized controlled trials, all of this epidemiologic data in my paper, it went through peer review at a, at a prominent medical journal past peer review. four peer reviewers, three high-level scientists from NIH and CDC, and my paper was accepted for publication. And then all of a sudden, the journal wasn't publishing it. It was an online journal. And people were dying. This is the winter of 21, you know, 2020, 2021, and, you know, they wouldn't publish this paper. The abstract got the most views of any abstract of that journal in its history. So that clearly the paper is really popular. And then then finally, I lost it one day and I wrote an email to the representatives of the journal. I said, I suspect scientific misconduct here. You're not publishing the paper. It's been accepted for peer review. And then that triggered the chief editor of all of those journals that controlled it. He basically just said, we're retracting your paper and no peer review. They didn't tell us what was wrong with our paper. He just said that he had gotten a complaint. He had asked an anonymous third party reviewer who said that our conclusions did not match our data and to retract it. No opportunity for revision. Like we had never had that. Like if you look at the five of us in the FLCCC, probably over 1500 peer reviewed publications in our careers over decades, never once had we suffered a retraction. You can only retract really if there's fraud or like plagiarism. And we weren't accused of either it passed peer review. And that's when I started to see like how maybe deep this is going to get. And what happened to me next is things, you know, then Merck comes out, says it doesn't work. I mean, they just plant brazen lies on their website and that triggers. So that was February 4 2021. My paper was retracted like a week or two earlier. Then Merck puts these three statements on their website, you know, there's no reason why it should work in COVID. There's no clinical evidence that it works. And also, we don't even know if it's safe. Like, I, I mean, I've never heard anything so ludicrous. But here's here's what was most impressive about that. Not that a pharmaceutical company would print lies on its website. But those lies triggered massive news response. Papers all over the world started shouting these lies that Merck just put on their website. So I'm starting to see a world that I didn't know existed. And and I will tell you that the most transformative experience it actually was March of 2021. I got an email one day from this guy, and I, and I tell this story all the time because it was such a it's it, it's such an important day in my life, but I got a two-line email from a guy named Professor William B. Grant. And he's actually one of the world's leading researchers on vitamin D. He's got hundreds of publications on vitamin D. And he just says, Dear Dr. Corey, what they're doing to ivermectin, they've been doing to vitamin D for decades. And then he included a link to an article, which is called the Disinformation Playbook. And I clicked on the link and I'm reading this article and it just transformed me. Like everything this article said, which is these five tactics that industry uses when science emerges that's inconvenient to their. and all industries do this, not just pharmaceutical industries, you know oil and gas, energy, agriculture, food. they deploy these tactics. And these tactics actually were first uh, made first kind of created and deployed by the tobacco industry. And they're named after American football plays. It's like the fake, the fix, the screen, the diversion. And I'm reading the examples of how they counter this science. And I'm like, saw that today. They did that to me yesterday. You know, I have three examples of that last week. And suddenly everything was happening in the world that I was confused about for months. It was like a click, everything made sense. I realized that myself, my colleagues in my organization We're literally fighting in a disinformation war. And they have way more firepower and tactics and control. And and that's that's the point of what I wanna say is that what I learned, so the concept of the fact that, of course, ivermectin is gonna be attacked because it threatens power, but how it was gonna be attacked, the scope and the scale, the fact that basically it revealed to me that Pharma runs the agencies, the politicians, the media, and the journals, and most of all the medical journals. That is their biggest weapon. What appears in the high impact medical journals of the world is what pharma allows to appear. And, and that's actually a chapter in my book and I call it the big six because the studies supporting ivermectin, we have 96 controlled trials. No one's ever heard of that. <laughs> You'll never hear that there's 96, right? There's 96 controlled trials, but I talk about what I call the big six. Those were the largest, and I'm using air quotes here, Highest quality, (laughs) rigorous trials of ivermectin. These are the trials that are presented to the world as we're finally going to understand if ivermectin is effective. They were heavily funded and they were unique amongst the 96. Very unique in these respects. Number one, it was the only early treatment trials that had investigators drowning in pharmaceutical company conflicts. I mean, these are all people whose careers, you know, are essentially dependent on the pharmaceuticals. That's number one. Number two is they pulled these, the most brazen tactics I've ever seen in science, because they literally were designing studies to show that ivermectin was not ineffective. And I saw all the tactics. So they used the lowest doses possible, the lowest duration. They treated patients as late as possible as they could get away with. And they chose the mildest patients. And they did it in countries where ivermectin was Widely being used, it was over the counter, and they took steps to not exclude patients on ivermectin. So how are you going to show ivermectin is effective when the control group is on ivermectin? And because there was so much ivermectin being used, they, they had very low hospitalization and death rates. And so you couldn't find differences. Well, and, and then, you,
0: add it, you add into that, Pierre. Sorry to hop in. But you add into yeah. it, the average person doesn't get all that. No, right? Because no. this is completely out of the realm. And the doctors that do, they just go, they're crazy, they're kooks, and don't listen to them. And they silence you and push you down and everything else. So all the public cares is that ivermectin doesn't work. Even yeah. though we're we're starting to watch these different independent media starting to interview people such as yourself and McCullough, And there's a whole list of people and but, everyone's going sure I want to say what you just said that applied to
1: me too like I mean I knew how to read a study critically I mean but I'd never read it I've ne- never read studies so critically because I knew the motives um what what was shocking to me was how much I was finding, how many shenanigans, brazen scientific misconduct, in, in the designing, and controlling, and and when I screamed and complained, of course, what are they going to say to me? Yeah, of course, you you, you want to com- critique these studies, and then they would attack all the studies that I was using. It was, and and then it, all it does is it creates doubt, right? And then and that's all you need to do is just create enough mm. doubt. You know, one person says this, another one person says that. No one knows who's right, and and they essentially destroyed the evidence of efficacy for one of the most potent medicines in any disease model I've ever studied. And I saw how they did it. And what I wanna say is though, the big six trials, they were the only trials published in the highest impact journals of the world. They came out and were published every three months over the last two years. And each one generated a negative PR, like headlines, New York Times, Boston Globe, LA Times large study finds Evermectin to be ineffective. <laughs> Do you know what it was like for my life to like wake up and see like the biggest newspapers in the world printing brazen scientific lies? And and basically, I just want to make that point is what I discovered is that pharma runs the game and they run the journals, the media, and, and the 97 trials or 96 trials like They're all published in like second and third tier medical journals because the big ones rejected all positive studies. I'm friends with a network of ivermectin researchers around the world. They could not publish their studies. Good, high quality studies, even from top universities. They would go to the Journal of American Medical Association, rejection. New England Journal of Medicine, rejection, rejection, rejection. Rejection. And then a couple of that sneak through to any some kind of prominent journal were getting retracted like mine and and teslaury in the uk i mean you got to see this phenomenal control at the root of science and i i i'm now estranged from the medical sciences because and i didn't know that before that's the thing i did not know how deep and how controlled science is if it's inconvenient to their interests and transforming
0: well i Man, it's interesting to hear you talk about it uh, because you have such a—I uh, don't know—a personal view of it, right? And and yeah, it's funny. Like I—I no, I don't know if it's funny. It's just you know when I re- rewind the clock, uh, you know, there there was doctor like doctors weren't allowed to prescribe up here. They weren't allowed to prescribe ivermectin. They could lose their license for it. And you're like, well, that's odd. Um, you know, and uh, I remember Premier Scott Moe in particular saskatchewan premier uh saying you know all you farmers need to stop using ivermectin and give your head a shake and i you know exactly his terminology and i remember watching that going this is odd this is this is like extremely odd um and then i had peter mckell on and i asked him about uh taking horse ivermectin and i really expected him to say don't do that that's a bad idea and he's like actually sean you know if you get the doses right it's fine and and i'm like uh oh, crap right like what have i unleashed here but the truth of the matter was is they were taking all the human ivermectin and saying that it was bad and you were going to die from it and all these things and i mean everybody remembers um, joe rogan and and what they did there with cnn and sandra gupta coming on and you're like what is going on like gupta won't even say what's going like it's it's so ingrained in what they do of trying to frame a story and i just like when you when you when you first talk, when we rewind the conversation to the EU emergency use and you go, Oh, there it is. That's why they're going to do it. You, I understood what they were going to do, but I didn't realize, I think what you're laying out, I didn't realize how much they controlled and how they could just like really ridicule something to the point of like anyone that's associated with it, no matter how much their expertise in it, no matter how much research they've put into it, it doesn't matter because they're going to frame you in a way, and then they're just going to run you off. Yeah. And, expo- and hope that you just, you know, disappear and never come back.
1: I mean, you know, Sean, let's I want to go to the because you just brought up like kind of Joe Rogan and the pharmacies. Because So I already kind of talked about like the core, right, which is the trials. How those trials were sailed through publication in the highest stamp- and they those trials stunk to high heaven. If I had done the same thing they did, I would never have been able to publish that trial. And I'm watching these trials with such brazen fraud all over them, and they literally sailed to publication. It's it's hard to publish a, a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine. I mean, you have to have your stuff tight. You know, you have to really run a good trial. And I'm watching these things sail to publication. So that's one thing, right? The journals. Then I'm seeing the media uproar that those journals are triggering. But let's move now towards those agencies and the pharmacy. So then, so here's the thing. Before we started talking or, you know, when we were off kind of camera, you mentioned that around August of 21, you started, you know, asking questions, interviewing people around code. Now, let's talk about August of 21 because what happened in August of 21 is the horse dewormer campaign was triggered by the way that was a pr campaign conducted by professionals and they used every media power they could and here's how it started in middle of august i think it was august 13th of 2021 data came out showing the weekly prescriptions of ivermectin in the u.s and so i have a chapter on this it's called the horse dewormer campaign and it had a start and it had a sequence and you could see how they deployed it and that's why like I didn't know they had this much power, but that data was extremely inconvenient. So pharma's now seeing that we hit 90,000 prescriptions a week. That's just retail pharmacies, not compounding. And what you see is within days, the CDC sends out a memo to every state department of health, which then gets into the inbox of every licensed physician that states, the entire country within one day gets a memo from the CDC saying that overdoses are on the rise and poison, by the way, just that memo alone was completely fraudulent they were overstating the the injuries from Iver. there are there were no injuries from Ivermectin. they were like phone calls where people were asking or they had taken a little bit and they weren't sure if they were sick i mean it was complete like there was nothing there but yet think about how that is as a doctor you get a memo from the cdc who you trust who has the public's interest at heart and they're telling you caution you know this drug is dangerous And the FDA hasn't approved it for use, which is a complete misleading. It's a misleading statement because it's an FDA approved drug and you can use FDA approved drugs for anything you want. It's called off label. But here they're saying don't use it because the FDA hasn't approved it for COVID. So that CDC memo goes. Then if you remember the famous FDA tweets. Now I'm starting to see this unholy alliance of public health agencies getting in on this anti-Ivermectin game. You know, you know the FDA tweet, you're not a horse, you're not a cow, you know, stop it, y'all. That tweet goes unbelievably viral. So the PR firm that ran this thing, I'm sure they got big bonuses for that, right? So then you have the FDA tweet. Then the American Medical Association, the American Pharmaceutical Association puts out this bulletin, which I've never seen. We call for the immediate cessation of prescribing of Ivermectin. So I'm seeing massive professional societies, our public health agencies, coordinate a sequence of events to destroy the idea that ivermectin could be effective. And when that memo, when that kind of memo came out, suddenly pharmacists around the country, you know, arrogantly, we will not fill because and if you show up the counter asking for your ivermectin, system, you're you're a crazy fringe, radical anti-vaxxer, and your doctor's probably a quack at this point, right? So that's what they did. Pharmacists won't fill. Hospitals s- removed it from their formulary. And so you saw the sequence of actions and the consequences were literally depriving the population of access to ivermectin. And I mean, if this isn't a horror story that I'm I'm describing, I don't know what else. And it and and I really kind of I tell this story in the book in in very you know clear, well referenced sequences of everything that happened. And you know, the book is really it's I think of it as a it's two things. It's autobiographical because I, I, there's a lot of other stuff that I did and happened to me in COVID besides ivermectin. I mean, everyone knows of my work around ivermectin, but I was involved in in quite a few different papers and insights, but. So it's somewhat autobiographical, but it's really a case study in disinformation campaigns, how they're conducted, why they're conducted, and they're not new. I mean, ivermectin is just a recent example, and I think it was just the biggest threat. Actually, it's not the biggest threat. My book is called The War on Ivermectin. Someone could write a book called The War on Hydroxychloroquine, because that actually was the more damaging war. And I'll tell you why, because we knew, people knew that hydroxychloroquine worked when this thing broke out. And that was the first war. Everything they did to ivermectin, they had done to hydroxychloroquine from fraudulent trials and the journals and the newspapers and the narratives. And had hydroxychloroquine deployed in early 2020, we would be, the world would be very different today. So the first is they extinguish evidence of efficacy around hydroxychloroquine. By the time researchers around the world discovered the efficacy of ivermectin, that was kind of 2021, the only reason why we, we became so well, we were not the first. I mean, <laughs> India, many states in India were already using ivermectin months before my testimony. There were there were places around the world that knew it worked. We just were very highly published and credentialed, and so we and that that testimony you know went viral. So we we got, I think people think of us as as, as those who identified it, but not at all, not at all. In fact, within two weeks of my testimony um, Mexico city launched a huge ivermectin early treatment program, but not because of my testimony. I'm um, clearly, they have been planning it for a while. So it's not like we had new news, but, but, you know, anyway, the book is is really uses ivermectin as an example of what pharma is capable of and, um, how they do it. Um, and, you know, because again, I'm a teacher and, and I think that book, I, I want that book to be not only almost like, um, A teaching document, a teacher's edition to how the world really works in science, but also it's a historical record. I I want history to remember what happened here, what they did. Millions of lives around the world were lost because of that war on Ivermectin.
0: Well, for the listener, I'm gonna pu- uh, put a link in the show notes that takes you to your book. That way, if they they want to go grab a copy, they can. Um, while I'm on it, uh, the dif- disinformation playbook is uh, is that an? Ar- when did you say that article was written? Um, was it 20? So that was written in 2017, I think. The first Union, Union yeah. of Concerned Scientists is that the re- yeah. article. So for the listener, because I already can hear them typing me. Uh, I'm going to put that in the show notes as well, because I haven't read that. I look forward to reading it because that's uh, th- that'll be
1: um... you can actually funny enough. You can put it in Google and it comes up as the first hit. If you just put in the disinformation yeah. playbook, well, that article go. comes up first hit. And yeah, <sighs> but that, that was written in 2017. And it has all of these examples of disinformation campaigns. And one of the most shocking, which had so many overlap, what happened to me and my organization is the NFL with chronic traumatic encephalopathy, right? So the the, the retired football players who are developing like a psychosis and dementia, and they, you know, they they were dying, you know. There was a pathologist who discovered that they all had these hemorrhages. and as that pathologist, as any doctor would, was trying to bring out that science, right? Because you want to help people, you want to let yeah. people know that you know, knocking your head in tackles for three decades can lead to this disease. And when you see what the NFL did to him and how they use journals and to suppress him, and they, they put out contradicting science. I mean, it was literally Ivermectin, but that was, and there was a movie about that.
0: Right? Yeah. They, Will Smith yeah, yeah, con- total. A concussion. Right.
1: Yep. Yep. And so, you know, that, that's it. but they have lots of examples of disinformation campaigns. Again, when science emerges, that's inconvenient to their interests, and nothing could be more in- inconvenient to the NFL uh, th- than that science. Now, here's the thing: NFL is a nine billion dollar industry. Pharma, trillion. It's like one point four trillion dollars. So, and,
0: you know, if the NFL can do that as a nine billion dollar industry, the pharma I mean, industry yeah. certainly can. Yeah, insanity. I wanna, you know, with with, uh, with a few minutes left, I know we got a little bit of time, but I, I want to make sure that uh, that we bring up the FLCCC because I uh, I think I think um, different uh, uh, protocols if there's vaccine injured because I, I've I've uh, definitely had some different stories on here. I've heard different people from the community, et cetera, et cetera, and I want to start here because uh, this is I think this is a like a feather in your cap. Uh, and it's it's was back on May 5th, I interviewed Mackenzie and Seth Bluen. Um, uh, listeners will recall, she was a girl that was playing uh, goalie for Notre Dame Hounds. That's um, hockey in Saskatchewan and high-level hockey in Saskatchewan. And she had to get vaccinated in order to play. And, you know, almost immediately um, of doing that, you know, over the course of months, her health just starts to deteriorate. You know, and I've, I've seen these videos of uh, Mackenzie walking where she has like – can't control her legs i don't know how better to explain it than that and when she was sitting here on you know back in may one of the things that she kept saying you know is i like i got pretty bad brain fog and like i haven't got control of my body and blah 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 anyways they started working with flccc and uh yesterday um i was sent by her father a bunch of videos of her like working out and like Mm. like doing footwork and stuff like it's a it's amazing like the the progression is insane again in the best possible way and uh he he just wanted seth wanted me to say to you uh, please thank him for me i will never get the chance mackenzie was in trouble without his service and your help with uh francis christian so uh, i w I'd reached out to a bunch of doctors uh, that i'd had on and they pointed me in your direction and so i think that's like important for people to hear when they're like how yeah. do we get if we're vaccine injured is life over or you yeah. know like what do we do now this is a 17 year old kid that um you know was in tough straits and now like the progression is uh pretty insane and i i i sent him a text this morning because i want to make sure i could clarify that that i could actually say that on here and he cool. was okay with it and he said 100 percent, his service probably saved her life and I can't thank him enough. And so, anyways, I, I thought that yeah. uh, I thought that's pretty cool information to share with yourself.
1: Let's talk about that, right? So, you know, when I said, you know, our original mission was to develop the most effective treatment protocols for COVID. I mean, at first it was hospital, and then we had early treatment and prevention because ivermectin is a wickedly uh, effective preventative, uh, much more so earlier in the pandemic. I mean, it still works now, just not as uh, not as well, but. um so we had early treatment, prevention, hospital, and then you know we started to see this long COVID thing. And I it was interesting. My first couple of experiences treating long COVID actually worked, and I was like I was shocked. I've met this actually really helpful there. And so we put out a protocol in June of 21. That was our first one. It had a few things on it, and it's very different now. But that's all I do now. And in fact, I will tell you that uh, I'm I. Stop going into all the rabbit holes. That's what I do. So let's be clear. So the FLCCC is a nonprofit. It's really an education organization. So we have a document on there. We call it a protocol. It's called the I Recover protocol, but it's really not a protocol because it's really a compendium of compounds and medicines and interventions, which can work in this disease. Um, but there's too many of them. I don't use all of them, number one. Number two, actually, so that's the FLCCC. I have a private practice. With, that's all I do. Me and my partner, all we do is we see uh, long COVID as well as vaccine injured. And we see patients with the syndrome of long COVID and vaccine injury. And I, I say syndrome because there are vaccine complications, and then there are syndromes. And the syndromes are very much alike. Um, and that's, that, that's drprcorey.com. By the way, I have quite a few patients that I, I treat and guide in Canada. Um, and so uh, I see patients all over uh, the U.S. and even in other countries. But, um, you know, there, so let me just describe the syndrome. So every patient I see has essentially three core symptoms. And those three are fatigue, varying amounts, oftentimes disabling, a very closely related symptom which is post-exertional malaise uh, which is that if they try to exert themselves and we're not even talking exercise, I mean, some patients, if they walk to their mailbox and back, they're decimated for the rest of the day, but like any sort of exertion worsens their other symptoms or their fatigue. So it's fatigue, post-exertion, melanin, and, and then what you said, some amount of brain fog, they all have a cognitive deficit. It's like memory uh, processing, um, focus, attention, uh, sometimes even disorientation. They get confused. And, So many of my patients were in the heights of health before this, like before the vaccine, I mean, eating well, exercising, great careers, raising families, and now they're literally disabled in their homes. They can't do anything. And and so out of those are the three core ones. And then I call, all the rest is a side menu. And in order of frequency, it's neuropathies, burning, pain, tingling, pins and needles, numbness, Um, even motor problems where they have weakness in their arms or legs. Um, then I see lots of what's called dysautonomia. So dysregulated control of the autonomic nervous system, like heart rates and blood pressure. And that's what limits a lot of them in exercise. I mean, I have patients who walk across the room, their heart rate is 150. I mean, it's really hard to get your heart rate to 150. They're doing it like going to the bathroom. And so they, 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 it leaves patients like unable to function and, um, You know, in my practice, it's funny, there's the FLCCC protocol, I do bunches of stuff that's not on there. And that's the reason that is, Paul, paul is the final arbiter of what goes on that protocol and he's very strict on what he puts on he only puts on things that have significant amount of clinical evidence to show that it's effective either in this disease or in related syndromes that have similar mechanisms whereas i'm using things that don't have as much clinical data but i know works and so i have a little bit different approach it's largely guided on that and this story that you just told me of this young girl she's one of the success stories because i will tell you I'll say this, all of my patients get better to some extent, oftentimes large, sometimes modest, and then I have a cohort that I really struggle with. They're so sick, and I have, the, the, the improvements that I've achieved in them are, are really quite small. Um, and so it's, it's a really complex disease, and it's really challenging to treat, but it's inspiring. Um, and by the way, you, you know this, Sean, right? Vaccine injury syndromes don't exist, right? There's no papers on that. There's no publications on the syndrome. There's no trials on how to treat it. There's no centers of excellence
0: for it. I mean, and Heck, we have, have the I, doctors up here won't acknowledge it. So No,
1: no, it doesn't exist. And if you bring it up, you're crazy. They'll send you to psychiatry. I mean, this is the world we live in. And so, you know, what one last thing I'll say is that, like, in the U.S., at all of these big academic medical centers, they have long COVID centers that they developed, Right. They don't have protocols. They don't have treatments. It's like endless referral and physical therapy, which to be honest, physical therapy in these patients is the last thing you want to do. <laughs> you don't want to stress them with exercise. In fact, you want to rest them and pace them. Um, and But there's no vaccine injury clinics. It's just long COVID. And now I think of long COVID as, as kind of a euphemism for vaccine. Like if you go, you can try to tell them it was the vaccine that started it, but they're just going to call it COVID related. Um, and, but anyway, it's, it's a wickedly, uh, challenge disease. I'm learning something every day. I have a huge collaborative network of doctors from different disciplines and specialties from,
0: and, well, from and I want to, I wanted to make sure I, I knew it was a, I, they passed along the name and I couldn't remember who it was. And it's Scott Marsland. I hope I'm that's saying that right. That's my partner. Yeah. yeah. And so that's who they've been, uh, dealing with. And, you know, once again, I, I think it's so cool for the listener to hear, like kind of the full story, right? Because it was only May when we we had her on, and ever that blew it. You know that was a big thing. I mean, it's June, folks. You know, like I'm I'm going like this has been two months since she was on, and he's sending me videos now of her like working out. She's running half a mile. She's and like like literally, I don't know. Like two months ago, I'm thinking like, you know, she's she's guided in how she walks. You know, like very. She- Conscious of how she's moving, and now she's doing all these these skills again, and you're like, this is really cool. And once again, I'm pointing. I wanted to really bring a, a, a point this out because the story of ivermectin is extremely interesting. But there's a ton of people right now searching for answers that have had problems with whether they call it long COVID, whether they call it vaccine injured, whatever they call it. They're looking for solutions, and one of the things we've talked a lot about. And seen and heard from different people is—is is there's a lot of doctors that don't want to talk about it, or will talk about it quietly, but they don't know what to do. And people have been searching for different answers, and some of them have answers up here. Others um, have reached directly out to Seth and have, have tried, uh, you know, to you know find his way and everything else. And so to have you on and talk about it, I think is like full circle kind of thing.
1: Yeah, I love it that you brought up a case of Scott. So Scott's my partner. He is absolutely just brilliant. And he's so caring of his patients. And, you know, what's interesting is he and I are literally figuring this out together. I mean, our approaches and what we treat has been evolving over. Like we start emphasizing different things, different orders. And just cause we're learning from each other I and mean, we're on the phone all the time. We're sharing our clinical experiences and insights and talking to others and, you know, there's no cure yet. I mean, we, we can definitely help patients. And I'm glad that this um, this girl uh, was one of Scott's success stories. And he has a lot, uh, but we also struggle with, with some. But, um, yeah, Scott's great. And, you know, at the risk of sounding self-promotional, I, you know, I, I want to help. But, uh, you know, have send people to my practice. We're, we're really happy to help
0: well i don't think it's self the heck that's why i'm bringing you on right yeah (laughs) like to me it's people are searching for answers we're trying to give i i I don't have the answers but i can certainly try and and uh, bring people on to the show that can talk about it and at least give them options right because when you have no options it feels freaking hopeless we all lived it like it like we lived through the time when there was one option they were only giving you one do this or life ends and you get ostracized from society and everything else. And so like, you know, let's take away the fear. Let's, let's try and give people the option or options, different ways of getting their life back on track and moving on. And I mean, you know, there's a whole lot, uh, to be, to be said of exactly what we led off with with the first 40 minutes. But right yep. now a ton of people are, are terrified that they're never gonna get life back or they're never gonna. And you know, to, to point out some options in what you're saying, I don't, I don't care about self-promotion. It's like, it's a good option.
1: Yeah. No. And, and that's why, like I, you know, I said at the risk of sounding self-promotional, but I, I also want to be honest. I literally know that these patients are underserved abandoned gaslit and suffering. And so we have answers, you know, I can't promise cures or, or improvements, but boy, we generally, uh, we're generally are able to help people and it's very satisfying and we want to do it. You know, it
0: as- you know what they, what, uh, what I've heard from people cause it, uh, Seth and his daughter are not the only ones that have gone through you. And what I've heard is it's just nice to be told. We believe you like, yeah. we, <laughs> and you're like, you know, that's, that's a sad state of affairs where that's probably the first thing that gets said is just like, yeah, we understand.
1: It's so sad, you know, that abandonment and gaslighting, it, it's all the psychopathology from from three years of unending propaganda and censorship, and really, unfortunately, mistruths and lies being circulated, so people are thinking strange. I, I use the term, the world's gone mad, but it's not their fault. It's, it's this unrelenting propaganda and censorship. People have strange ideas, and they're not, they're forgetting how to behave, and, you know, uh, let me end on the sadness, and we can stay on something positive, but the, the, there is a continuing consequential tragedy to this ivermectin more because although the the variant is milder now we're not seeing as much death or hospitalization i mean it's a much milder disease and it's been that way for a while um the challenge is in long COVID and vaccine injury ivermectin in my experience has been the most effective treatment i, I don't say it works in everyone i in my experience it's been about 70% of my patients will respond positively but here's the thing they need it daily and oftentimes for long periods but now you're talking about we're living in these advanced health economies where you can't get ivermectin you know and so like there's people suffering again from these chronic syndromes who now can't get access to an effective medication and my guess is this woman that you talked i don't know her case or anything but my guess is that she's an ivermectin responder Um, because I'll tell you in my practice, those that respond to Ivermectin and the responses vary. Sometimes they're really large. Sometimes they're much more modest, but the ones who don't, I know that the road ahead is going to be hard. My Ivermectin non-responders are much more difficult to treat. And So if she got better quickly and is doing so well, my guess is that she's responded to that.
0: Well, I won't uh, act like I know. Uh, that's, yeah, I don't uh, know either. But for yeah. for the audience, if they're wanting to figure that out, then uh, you know they can certainly reach out to me because I've put a lot of them in contact with Seth Bloom, um, uh, and certainly have pushed them your guys' way. Um, in saying all that. With a couple minutes uh, left, just wanted to say I really appreciate you hopping on and doing this, uh, uh, making a little bit of time. Um, Is there anything else that we haven't uh, I've skimmed over or anything like that that you want to make sure moving forward? You know, uh, the crude master final question has been, you know, what's next and how can we help? Uh, And and I don't know what that is for for uh, for Pierre.
1: yeah, let's – I want to try to end on a positive note. You know, I, I've learned really disturbing things for, of how the world works, especially the world of medical sciences and, you know, even the wider world. A lot of the institutions, you know, I've had to learn some uncomfortable truths about them. But I will say there's a lot of us, and I want to include you, who are really working to continue to, you know, be honest and open and truth and give guidance and education. And if you think of our organization, I, I think we have a really big future. I mean, Paul Marrick just – we just uh, – posted on our website he spent months and he has a scientific monograph of all of the clinical evidence for repurposed therapies in cancer treatments for cancer you'll never hear your oncologist tell you but of which there's immense amounts of science for right Mm -hmm. and and again so maybe we are continuing to fight the corruption science but we just want good information to be available for people and so you know you know, he Paul worked on cancer. I'm immersed in trying to figure out this vaccine injury and and long COVID thing. I mean, there's an absolute, you know, millions of people who are suffering from those conditions, and I think there's no more important disease to study and work on than that. And so, we have a lot of work ahead. You know, I've I, I lost three jobs. I'm no longer a critical care doctor, um, but I have a practice now and. I I, I like my career and and I'm outside of that system. I'm fee-based. I don't deal with any, um, uh, you know, uh, insurance companies. I actually practice under the auspices of an Indian tribe. Um, So even the state medical boards uh, have no jurisdiction over me. It's it's the tribal council that does. And so, you know, we need to be build parallel systems, not only media, independent media podcast. I mean, that's the only, we have to build a parallel system. The system's been captured. And, and so, I'm happy to come on and talk to you, and I, and I hope you keep speaking truth and and um and getting good information out because people are starving for good, accurate, honest information with integrity.
0: Well, that's one way to end it. Thank you, uh, sir, for hopping on and doing this with me. giving me some time. I hope we. I hope it's not the only time we ever get to chat. I hope uh, we can convince you to come back on this and Shares and share some more information.
1: Anytime, Sean. My pleasure. It's great talking to you.